Hello and welcome to another Ulster Rugby Roundup, another Ulster game, another defeat today. I'm Gareth Hanna and with me to do that are Adam Denton. Hey guys. And Jonathan Bradley. Hello. We'll also have a look ahead to Ulster A's British and Irish Cup quarterfinal against Bedford Blues and we'll hear from John O'Gibbs and Ulster A coach Willie Anderson. Um, we've got plenty of interaction with the listeners to come, loads of listener questions, of course the weekly donor too, and um, in the club section we'll look back at Balamina's game against UL Bohemian. But first, unfortunately, we have to start with Cardiff 35, Ulster 17, and as bad as that result looks, it was actually worse than that. Yeah, um, <laughs> John who said after the game that it felt more like a 60-point defeat, and in all honesty, it, it did. I mean, that was one of the worst performances Ulster have put in all season, um, and I'm, I'm, it's not as bad as Connacht, uh, but it wasn't too far away. I mean, Cardiff from the beginning, from the first minute to the last minute, they were the better side, and I didn't expect anything different. To be honest, it's got to that point in the season where you just knew that once Cardiff went ahead, that was it. That was the game lost. Ulster offered nothing in attack. Defensively, they were being cut apart every time by the outstanding Jared Evans. Um, And I mean, I've watched the game back and I still can't tell if he was great or if Ulster were just giving him far too much space. I think it was probably a case of both. But was I surprised with the result? Absolutely not. This is just where Ulster are at the moment, and it was compounded by the fact that even somehow, with the very faint possibility they might have actually managed to get a losing bonus point out of it, they managed to completely miss the restart right at the very end, and Cardiff got that fourth try, um, which actually now creates history because that was the 69th try Ulster have conceded this season, um, which makes it their worst defensive season in history. I remember us talking about that earlier in the season and sort of wondering, was was that going to happen? And it's actually happened with, what, four games left to play? Yeah, Yeah, well, I mean, they were massively on pace to date from around (laughs) December time and then got worse defensively. So I don't think that was a record that was ever in any doubt that it was going to (laughs) happen sooner rather than later. Um, Equally surprising, as Adam says, that, Ulster managed to mess up a restart because <laughs> I just don't know how many times we've seen that this year. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was bizarre. It was a bizarre game in the sense that Ulster were still in it on the scoreboard after an hour, despite being so obviously second best. And it could have been even closer because they went for the corner a few times yeah. rather than kick points when John Cooney was in very good kicking form. So they could have been even closer. And the fact that Cardiff took 82 minutes to get their bonus point, considering that they got their first try after 117 seconds or something. But coming into the game, like in last week's podcast, we highlighted the importance of Cardiff, whether they would have Gareth Anscombe and Josh Navidi back, saying that could be really critical for the game. Neither of them played. Cardiff's 10 and 7 were their best players. So that's the kind of insightful analysis that we're giving you week on week here. <laughs> but the way that Cardiff play, we, we, like we saw it the same and the, some of the same players 
here at the end of last season. Cardiff, because they're so good at the breakdown, and what they did at the breakdown on Saturday was without Navidi and without Sam Warburton, and because they have centres whose first instincts are to offload. Like I can't remember seeing a team that are so easily cut open by one offload um, as Ulster the last couple of years. You know we've seen it with Cardiff, we've seen it um, against Claremont and. A fair amount of teams recently. If you have centres that are willing to play a bit of ball, then you're really on their winner against the side, and it proved so again. Um, Cardiff having won four in a row in the league and now five in a row in the league, that was the most striking thing to me from that game was the difference in how a team looks when one's high on confidence and one doesn't have any. Well, now, to be fair to Ulster, they've actually provided us with a plate of sandwiches today. So do you think they're just trying to sort of butter us up and make sure we're nice to them after all that? There's a lot of sweet corn in those sandwiches. I don't think anyone any favours. Uh, to be fair, that's the one I'm eyeing up here. So while we um, talk into these, we'll let you have a little listen to what John O'Gibbs had to say after the match because, um, as Adam sort of hinted earlier, he didn't mince his words at all. So um, here he is. For me, I think a really deflating 80-minute performance. Uh, there's not a lot that we can we can hang our hats on there. There's not a lot we can be proud of around that 80. There's, you know, I think the scoreboard isn't a fair reflection of how utterly we weren't in that game. Yeah, I'm not sure they played particularly well, to be honest. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty deflating. There's nothing really that we want to be associated about in that performance. Uh, there's nothing that we aspire to be in that performance. There's nothing. It's nothing positive about that game for us. It's not good enough. Um, it doesn't reflect uh, what we're trying to do, what we're trying to work on, um, what we, you know, put uh, pride in, and what's important to us as a group, as a guys that weren't in that group tonight. It's just not good enough. It's a letdown for a lot of people because. Um, you know, there's guys in the non-23 this week that really put in and helped us prepare and they'll be sitting at home watching that and, you know, they should be rightfully uh, uh, feeling a bit let down. Straight talking there from Jono then. Um, but one part of what he also said was that he said that's not what the Ulster preparation had looked like before the game. So um, I think it's probably not the first time we've sort of heard something like that this season. How can... How can the team let this happen? And if they are preparing all right, do you know, is, is it that confidence that you were talking about before we went to John? To John there is that what makes the difference if you go out in the pitch in a, a competitive scenario and you just the players are that their confidence is that shot that they literally just can't do it now. Like Jono's mentioned it there. Um, Darren Cave was talking about it in an interview that we ran in the newspaper today. Um, a few other players. Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday indeed. Just in case it doesn't go out tomorrow. A, f- a few other players have mentioned, um, even just off the record this week, that these performances are a bit of a mystery to them because they feel like they're preparing well and then something happens when they cross that white line. So there is part of that that has to be a mental thing. When you're turning in bad performance on bad performance on bad performance, then it grows because mistakes lead to more mistakes. You see that at any level and you've seen the flip side of that with Cardiff who are now on a roll and are playing with that confidence and the things that they're trying and attack are 
coming off, but th there is there's more to it than confidence. There is structural deficiencies in the way they defend teams that play at a high tempo. We've talked about that before. Um, what Cardiff are doing in defence? Because you have to remember the Ulster had something along the lines of 57% possession. So they had enough ball, but things were going continually wrong in their shape because the line speed that Cardiff were producing, Ulster didn't have any answer for. They weren't asking questions of Cardiff. So, I mean, you saw it, like, Craig Gower nearly had his head taken off at one point. Um, the pass to him was that telegraphed, and he got hit that hard just by Cardiff breaking their line, knowing when to rush out. And but that that to me suggests that Ulster don't have players who can think on their feet. If the preparation is good, then they've prepared for what Cardiff are going to bring. Now maybe maybe Cardiff have completely changed their defensive system, but I would be very surprised if they did. So if Ulster have prepared for this defensive system, and they're not making any inroads at all, either they've got their preparation wrong, and they're not admitting to it. Or the players can't think on their feet when they come up against something they didn't prepare for. And that, for me, is quite a big problem as well. Because you need guys who are able to play heads-up rugby. You need guys who are able to change things up when things aren't going your way. And also just stuck to the same old tactic. Kieran Treadwell running these bizarre dummy lines that aren't fooling anyone. And then the passes out the back. There's, there's nothing sort of changing it up, keeping the opposition guessing. It's all so easily telegraphed. Well, I agree with that 100 percent, and that's the kind of when you when you're faced with that line speed, the obvious thought process is that it's time to start chipping the ball over the top or kicking the ball over the top. But all these things are connected. So if you're getting completely bossed at the break time, which Ulster continually are at the minute, then you've got slow ball to the scrum half. The out half, who doesn't have a great deal of experience at this level, is then rushed, and then the whole thing falls apart. The breakdown again was a massive issue. Um, Nick Williams having a great time out there. Um, I, th I, said, I said that last week. I knew exactly that we were going to see what we're missing with Nick Williams. He, di he didn't even carry that much. No. It was just his impact at the breakdown and sort of just around the pitch. Without the carrying, he was still one of the most effective players. And then you mentioned earlier, Ellis Jenkins was just superb in the yeah. open side jersey. Was it nice to watch Nick again in a, in a weird way? No. <laughs> I always love watching Nick Williams. It's great. Whenever he, went in, whenever he went in for that first turnover and he was absolutely raging that he got um, said to be assist, assisting the tackler and then not releasing it and he was ripping and then he got his turnover about 35 seconds later. Just a big <laughs> smile on his face. It's great to see. Great to see him enjoying himself. But, um, <laughs> not this week. No. Uh, I think he's third third in the league in yeah. turnovers, which yeah. considering Tyg Byrne is uh, so far away from everyone just playing otherworldly rugby at the minute, that's <laughs> that's pretty impressive. But Nick Timoney, for me, has been a real bright point mm. of this season, and I think he was probably Ulster's best player on the day on Saturday. That's funny. That's, I was going to ask you, because um, thinking of our, our ratings that were in the paper this week, the vast majority of them were fives. Nobody got higher than a six. There were three fours in the starting lineup. So, uh, I mean, w Nick, you're saying, was the pick of those, but was that sort of the best of a bad bunch? I mean, did anybody have any sort of a, a, a promising game that you think, Jeepers, I like the look of that, or was it just a case of, like, uh, if we need to pick somebody? 
No, like I thought, I thought Timoney had a very good game. He led the led the tackle count. He carried very well. But one area of Timoney's game that's still very much developing is his presence at the breakdown. So he can't at the minute be relied upon to have a real presence in that sort of breakdown battle. And then you know you had Clive Ross thrown back in for a rare start. And you just don't have you don't have the back row resources at the minute. Obviously, could see it being out as you know, you know we've banged on about it and banged on about it and banged on about it, but could see it missing is a huge thing. Henderson came back in to play six when he's been playing lock for Ireland, and it's one of those if you play him at lock for Ulster, then at the breakdown you have an extra presence there in addition to your back rowers. But if you play him as a back rower, then you're not maximising your presence. Even, say, Gethin Jenkins. I thought Gethin Jenkins had a really good game as well, and it was what he brought to the Cardiff breakdown. And there's a lot to be said for players like that. You know, he's not the force that he once was, but you're still talking about an 100-cap Welsh international. And that's what Ulster don't have at the minute, because this team selection, more than any other this season was a clear sign of what I believe Bryn Cunningham was talking to season ticket holders about, that essentially that group of 30-something players all seemed to have been jettisoned. So you had Kiev not involved, you had Chris Henry not involved, Tommy Bow travelling as an extra man, Andrew Trimble not involved, Paul Marshall not involved. So those are five guys. Um, Robbie Dyack I think was still injured, so you, you, know, you can throw him into that mix as well. It, it looks like the 30-somethings with the exception of Rory Best to come back in. It looks like the 30-somethings are all very much on the outside for the rest of this running. In my opinion, that was quite obvious because you saw Ulster go 14-3 down and they got a penalty in the 22nd minute and they kicked to the corner instead of the goal. Now, I understand you've just gone two scores down, but at that point you've still got an R of game of the game to get back into it. Why are you kicking to the corner? Make it 14-6. Take your points. Keep the score <clears throat> sorry, keep the scoreboard ticking over. And you know you're still in it. And in the end, I, I can't remember exactly what happened at that line out, but they didn't score. I guess and it was scrappy and then they still got a back but they ended up giving away Jen- a penalty. Jenkins got a yeah. turn turnover. Um but that that's key. In the second half Ulster decide to kick for the corner with a penalty. They don't score. It comes back out. They get a penalty in the same place. And then they decide to kick it for goal. What's the strategy there? Where's where's someone in a leadership position saying, look, we'll keep it ticking over instead of, right, we'll go for the corner this time, but if we don't get it, we'll kick the next one. You know, what? what's the strategy? Where Where is this team going? And I, I don't see it. You're putting a lot of pressure on Rory Best to come back in and take the rudder of the ship and try to get it back onto the right track because one man isn't going to turn this team around but it looks like that's what they're crying out for him to do. Do you think those decisions then emphasise how much you miss Rory as a captain when he's not there? But it shouldn't be just down to Rory. I, th- I think, yes, it is a reflection on how much you miss Rory but there's enough people in that squad and that team that should have the wherewithal and the know-how to say we're going to keep the scoreboard ticking over or we're just going to keep going to the corner. Mm. 
because this whole mix and mix and matching of kicking to the corner and going for the posts and deciding to do this and deciding to do that just it just didn't work and for for me it's just showing a complete lack of leadership and a lack of direction on the pitch and potentially from the coaching box as well because I, I don't know whether the coaches say right you guys decide whether you kick for goal or um, will be sort of giving instructions from uh, in the box over what you're going to do but it, there's just some sort of a breakdown in either the leadership on the pitch or the communication from the coaching and I suspect it's more the leadership on the pitch than uh, anything else Well in terms of um, where that result then leaves Ulster I suppose like, given that it, it wasn't unexpected um, it hasn't really changed the uh, it was already panic stations last week as regards <laughs> Bennett, wasn't it? And it's still, well, maybe even more so panic stations now. I don't know, maybe that's what that alarm there is about. <laughs> Someone's finally hit the big red button marked panic. Um, it was still a bad weekend because I wrote a little bit about this in the paper as well, about you have to minimise the damage on days when you're not playing well. Ulster have only got two losing bonus points this season, one of them away to Zebra, which was a game that you should have won, and then the other at home to Edinburgh, which was a game that you lost in the last minute. Those are the only two losing bonus points. You look at Munster. Munster, I think, have five losing bonus points. That's an entire extra win, yeah. essentially. Mm. you know. And that's something that Ulster have been very bad at this season because they've been beaten by 14 points or more seven times, so they've got humped seven times. And they're not staying in games and maximising their returns from them. And that's something that becomes so important at this time of year. And now you're looking at it, you don't have a buffer to Benetton. You've got one point. Edinburgh are almost mathematically away and will be... They can put that playoff issue to bed if they win next time out in Murrayfield. But if Ulster lose that game, Benetton have Dragons at home. So then Bennett and then overtake, you'd still fancy... I know Jono said crystal balling was a waste of energy in his uh, post-match there, but we'll do it anyway. <laughs> you would imagine that Leinster will beat Teresa, but then they've got Zebra at home last game of the season. And uh, an Italian team being in the Champions Cup would be very important with an Italian derby to play in the last game of the season. I don't know. I'm not saying there's any connection there, but... Uh, I, I, th- I think either way, just floating that idea. I think either way, Benetton would beat Zebra anyway. Like, I, I, yeah. I, I understand what you're saying, but I think I think two full-blooded sides going at each other, Benetton would come out on top anyway. So we're but, looking at... We're looking at in all, as we're crystal balling here, um, I love that as a, a verb <laughs> to um, to crystal ball. <laughs> we're looking at Benetton getting what another nine, ten, ten points. Ten. We'll go for ten. Let's say ten. So, so that be... takes them up to fifty-five points. Ulster need to find another nine points to go level with them on points, which would mean who would finish it. Ulster would finish higher from the head to head. They average one more games. That would be the same. Oh, average one more games, was it? Ever. Right, okay. There's, oh. a, there's a whole load of oh, heads. Dear, look, all. look. Well, let's we'll, say we'll Ulster need it. at least nine points. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll boil it down to Ulster need nine points to at least be level with Benetton. And, and I've, more, I've been uh, saying this for so long, I don't see where those 
nine points are coming uh, from. Just in case the, anybody the, the more mathematically attuned of you out there will realize that that's two wins out of four games. Yeah. Yeah. And, and those wins. games, in case anybody forgets, are <laughs> away to Edinburgh, then at home to Ospreys and Glasgow, and then away to Munster. thing is, if this side is coming away from Cardiff with nothing, how do you see them coming away from Edinburgh with something? How do you see them coming away from Munster with something? Um, and at the moment, how do you see them being in Glasgow, in Belfast? Or the- Ospreys? Ospreys who beat Lanster. Well, that's also true. Also, Ospreys are such a different side when they have all their players available, which is uh, which is what they're going to have when they come here. So, yeah, like I go along with that. There are a few teams in the Pro 14 who are more affected by losing their international players. Um, their performances in November. You make the same argument to a different extent with Glasgow. Obviously, they're beating everyone throughout the season, but we've seen that from them in seasons past where they're a very different outfit in February and March than they are in April but Ospreys certainly are a team that are much better um, if you look at it comparatively when they have their international players obvious to say but the jump with them seems like it's more than with other teams well, we've, got to, we've got to bear in mind you were talking about uh, Benetton playing Zebra in the last game of the season and two Italian sides Ulster playing Munster in the last game of the season. Now, if Munster are secured in second and potentially have a European game the next week, you could see a scenario where Ulster are going down to Tillman Park with their full side and Munster putting out sort of their A team. So you could possibly be in a situation where Ulster could be going down to Tillman Park with a shot because of that. You don't want to be relying on that. And it could be a case of Ulster have lost their three games up to that point and it doesn't matter. But... I, th- I think you, you have to be ahead of Benetton going into the last round of games. You do. Because ben- you know, Benetton will get five points against Zebra. So you have to be in a situation where <laughs> they you don't need to match their result. The last Ulster team to win in Dolman Park anyway, it was like an Ulster A team essentially. Yeah. Um, get James McKinney on the blower, he just storm around that <laughs> What disappoints me more than anything is that I don't think either of us have remembered to call him Treviso to annoy Adam so far. No, Johnny did, because oh, I, 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 I gave him a death glare. <laughs> saw the gnashing so Fantastic, well done. <laughs> well, as Jonathan would say, we'll, we'll segue into the listener questions now then, um, because Bart S has given us the, the great opportunity to do that with his question of will Ulster win another game this season. So if they were to lose the final four, that would be seven defeats in a row to end a, a season, which um, would be pretty catastrophic. Can, can we see that happening? I can see it happening. I don't think it will. I think they will find one win from one of those four games. But as, as I said, I could see it happening because Edinburgh away and Munster away are two games that will be extremely difficult. Glasgow at home, again, you're facing possibly the form side in the Pro 14 all season. And Ospreys have just beaten Leinster. Somehow, from somewhere, they will pull out a win in one of those four I think, uh, but I could see them losing all. We should know this, but when was the last time Ulster did at least seven games in a row? Well, do, do we have the stat? 
Um, this is normally the kind of thing that I have to look up. Yeah, it's usually I, the I thing you. Ha- you have. It's usually yeah. the thing you have. If I don't yeah. have stats, then what do I have? That's really my thing. Like. <laughs> Scoops. <laughs> but uh, you'd wonder having lost three in a row and having lost three in a row in the fashion that they have, being so outplayed by Scarlets and so outplayed by Cardiff, and losing in the heartbreaking fashion that they did to Edinburgh, and looking down what's coming down the pipe in that fixture list you'd wonder about the confidence of the players and the mindset of the players facing into this run that's so important because that's going to be key what the players are thinking well you'd think we would have the views of the players but Ulster didn't give me any players after the game despite me asking can I get a player and despite meeting the team bus completely by coincidence outside the stadium and then the players in the airport the next day Ulster would not give me a player to talk to and get the opinion of so I like the way you added the completely by accident there in case well, you came across like a stalker <laughs> no it, it was <laughs> I just happened to be in the airport <laughs> no um, I was actually and getting, when I turned up outside their house by yeah. mistake <laughs> sorry we, we completely but derailed no, you on an important yeah point. sorry yeah I mean it's I, I don't know if the Pro 14 have any regulations about what they have to provide. But Ulster refused to give me a player three times. So how, how are we supposed to know the opinions of the players and what they're thinking? Especially after a defeat like that where the coach has admitted you know, it should have been a 60-point spread. Why are we not getting the opinions of players? I don't want to go on another accountability rant. I've done that for like... <laughs> Four, it's all, it's all right. Of the last five I'll podcasts. take the burden this time. And I would say, uh, if there is an organisation that has questions about their accountability, then again, stopping media talking to members of that organisation when things happen probably wouldn't be the way that I would go about it. But you know, there's we've, nothing. We've had this discussion a few times now. Yeah. Yeah. Let let the media talk to the players. It's it's not it's not like I'm trying to get them whenever they're rushing away anywhere. They're sitting in an airport departure lounge waiting for a gate that's being called in half an hour. When was this? This was on the Sunday afternoon. Right, well, um, moving on then to Liz Fraser, uh, who asked a couple of good questions this week that we thoroughly enjoyed. The first one of those is if you had a time machine and you could bring back any two Ulster players into this current side... Which two would they be? And you have to pick one forward and one back because it's Liz's question and she makes the rules. Well, that's, that's fair enough. Exactly. <laughs> the, li- the listener defines the rules. Um, if you're looking at it for what this team needs at present, like from what we've seen in the last number of games, maybe not what we'll see in general, then the positions that you really need are a lock and a ten. And I'm really like I'm loath to go for the two most obvious <laughs> answers here, like because like there's a part of me that would like to say David Humphreys and Stephen Ferris because of the age that I am that I'd like to see them play again, yeah. but I'm just gonna say Willie John McBride to play lock and Jack Kyle to play ten, which is the most obvious answer, but it is yeah. tailored to what this team actually needs at present. Yeah. So you're choosing your head over your heart in that one. Yeah. Be good. I, there's a part of me that still like really misses seeing Stephen Ferris play, and the fact that it, I think is he 32 now. The fact that he still could be playing. Is he 30? Is that how yeah. he is? Yeah. I mean, yeah. not that he's any looks older, but no, just, but just I like just, it yeah. feels like he's been retired for a very long time at this stage, and then you realise that he still should be playing. Yeah. 
Should win one the Grand Slam. Yeah. Um, we should have three more Six Nations titles. Yeah. But... This is for another week. We could just say, like, <laughs> what should Stephen Ferris have? There's a really great what-if Ulster team about that. Because like, you could have, oh, like... Yeah. You could have a back row of Ferris... Um, Pollock. David Pollock. Um, you could have Victor Vito playing number eight. <laughs> Ruan back at nine. Yeah. Like... That, that what-if team would probably, uh, probably beat the current Ulster team. But anyway... Um, Probably yes. I just <laughs> just to conclude, I'm giving yeah. the most boring answer and going for two of Ulster's three best ever players. <laughs> yeah, I'll go slightly more recent, and it's coming off the back of Saturday's game, and I would bring back Johan Muller simply for the leadership he commanded within that dressing room. It does not surprise me at all that you went for Johan Muller. I, I love Johan Muller. <laughs> I met him out in Port Elizabeth and he was the nicest guy I've ever met. Um, <laughs> Pick up that name that he just dropped there. <laughs> um, in the backs in the backs I would go because I think Ulster absolutely need a 10. Um, and I'm not going to try and avoid that. But I feel like they also need something more in the centres. So I'm going to bring back Paddy Wallace as well, as someone who could play both if necessary. But, um, you know, he, he could bring along Johnny McPhillips a bit more and also slide into 10 if necessary. But he could also play 12 and give that little bit of extra in the back line. And that's probably also showing the fact that uh, I, I wasn't around for most of the early <laughs> professional era. I was going to say, because like, picking a centre that's not Mike Gibson is a bold call. Well, <laughs> I Again, know, like, I'm saying that I picked the boring ones, but like... I appreciate that you picked the people. Well, I, 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 went, I, went for, I went for recent guys, just because yeah, they were the first ones I thought of. <laughs> Actually, Blair Mayne. Blair Mayne would have been class to cover. Just would have been great interviews. And he would have again provided something that Ulster needs. So I'll throw him into the next. I picked five. At yeah. This stage. So yeah. Look, if you ever make your decision the next week, you can tweet it or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting on Miller and uh, Wallace. <laughs> well, quite appropriately, then Liz's next question will bring us back to earth uh, in a lovely fashion, as she asks, "When did the sledgehammer of reality kick in?" Not to our question here and our discussion, but in terms of the season, I the assume Ulster, the Ulster season, rather than just my life. <laughs> <laughs> I think probably the drama reality kicked in for us when we started looking at wedding venues. Think no, we're not getting married to each other. <laughs> if we just boot up, we getting married this summer. If we had a joint one, we could like half the cost. So oh my Do you realise what that sounded like as I was speaking? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Anyhow, yes. Let, let's, let's get back to the question at hand. Sledgehammer of reality. I think for me it was the Dragons away game because that game was in the bag. But you just couldn't defend. And then Leo Leofano scoring the late try by missing the conversion was just a nice summation of what this season is. It's like every time you think there's a little chink of chink of light coming through, then something horrendous happens. And just to yeah just to f- make sure that you're aware that this is a season going horribly wrong. Plus, like, Dragons have been no great shakes either, so not being able to win there really summed up the problems with the away form. Plus, I think it was around there and that we had to, like, really kick into gear with the old uh, why can Ulster not defend coverage. So that was when uh, 
certainly I had to start writing just negative pieces day after day after day after day, which is <laughs> really sullying my outlook on life at present. <laughs> it, it took me a lot longer to sort of become <clears throat> negative, but I'm going to go back a few weeks before that to the Kings game out in South Africa because that was one where Ulster should have won it easily. It should have been a straightforward five points and they somehow contrived to nearly lose it um, and only won at the end. I mean, from a neutral perspective, it was a, it would have been a fantastic game to watch, but from an Ulster perspective, it was terrible. And um, I was speaking to Les Kiss after the game and he said to me, you know, that, that was a tough game. You know, that it was a really good win from our perspective. And at that point, it suddenly twigged with me. He actually thinks this is a good result, that we've beaten the Kings by seven points and nearly lost to them. And then that sort of started the chain reaction of nearly being beaten by Benetton at home, drawing with the Dragons, um, and then the atrocities that were Connaught and Leinster. So that's sort of when reality sort of hit me that... That's that's actually what you think, um, and then things just haven't improved from that point. I think, like I consider the Kings game um, as my answer, but I I do think at that stage you were still maybe willing to give the benefit of the doubt and be like, certainly it was part of a turning point, but you were still thinking travel, maybe they just weren't mentally mm. there, that kind of thing, um, where you were almost thinking that maybe it was get out of jail and move on, but we need to stop saying scooped past uh, Benetton because those two scraping past Benettons are the only thing that is stopping this season being a complete and unmitigated disaster at this point. I was thinking about this the other day. Imagine if they had lost those two games. Like, Ulster had eight points in those games when they could have ended up getting three. So, like, that's a massive swing that now looks like the two most important games of the season, as much as at the time it felt like they'd lost them. Here's hoping at the end of the season they're still looking um, just as important. Um, our next question then um, we're really just relying on two people for this week's listener questions to be honest um, because the questions asked were quite good so fair play to them the other one from Bardes again he asks if Marshall and McCluskey had been playing for Munster and Farrell and Arnold had been playing for Ulster um, which two would have been called into the Ireland squad for the Six Nations it depends on where you want to tackle the question like are you looking at it from the perspective of if Farrell and Arnold were still here, would they be in the Ireland camp? Or are you looking at it from the point of view of if Stuart McCloskey and Luke Marshall were playing in a successful team, would they be part of the Ireland camp? Um, so I would say that if McCloskey and Marshall were playing in Munster, they'd have a far better chance because I think both of them at different times this season have played some good rugby. If they were playing in a better functioning team getting better ball, playing better rugby as an attacking hole, then of course it would increase their chances of uh, of playing for Ireland. And as we've seen from the Six Nations representation, even somebody who's playing very well, like John Cooney, um, it's very hard to break into Joe Schmidt's thinking when you're part of a team that's underperforming to such a degree. And it's part of the reason why you've seen Ireland be a success as essentially by and large I'm aware that there's three or four from Ulster and Connor but by and large a two province side at the moment so 
you think if it were swapped around, Marshall and McCluskey would get the nod? I think it would certainly help them. I think, especially in the case of McCluskey, like I think he's been unlucky with Ireland. I think when he's played, he's played pretty well and hasn't got the reward of that, so I don't know if that would change if he was wearing red rather than white. You don't know, but certainly it's a lot easier to look like you're ready for the step up to international quality if you're playing in a team that's going well in the Pro 14 and especially in Europe as well because that's really that bridge from the Pro 14 into the test setup. You want to be showing that you can perform on the uh, European stage, which is what Munster and Leinster have done. I'm just going to take that as a yes. <laughs> you, you, look at, you look at the two <laughs> players and they're very similar styles of players, very physical guys who can be used as a link-up man in the midfield. Ulster used McCluskey as a battering ram and very little else. Munster used Farrell as a battering ram and the pullback guy in midfield and someone who they can use as a focal point in their attacks. You wonder how they would have used McCluskey and if we'd see a lot more of McCluskey's game if he was down at Munster, and I think that maybe would have worked in his favour if the roles were reversed. Yeah, because Farrell's distribution, because of the size of him, Farrell's distribution is really underrated. But for me, it's something that he developed with Grenoble, not here. So you don't know what would have happened to him if he had stayed here at the time. There was a huge logjam of centres, which isn't there now. You're actually looking a bit threadbare at centre at the minute. Um, you know, you were talking about people like James Hume and being like, not that long ago when James Hume was in school you were thinking where's he going to break through and, or when's he going to break through and now you're thinking that if you don't see him certainly this season then you'll definitely see him next season and it's a very changed landscape in Ulster's midfield I mean, when Sam Arnold was here he was very obviously a centre but he ended up playing on the wing in a few games and it's it's part of a larger problem and I assume this is what's prompted the question of players who look better when they go somewhere else and it hasn't happened as much as people seem to think that it has like there are players who people have been very upset to see leave who have not gone on to do anything elsewhere but you know you can throw Farrell Arnold Tommy Seymour um, Steenson Whitten uh, Paddy McAllister all Nylonette all people who are playing at premiership level or high up in the Pro 14 or whatever who have done better and when you look at the dearth of players that you have in their primes here those are all players with the exception of Steenson who's um, 34 I think now those are all players who are in their prime who have been in the system Finley Beelham another one uh, who have been in the system and are now not I think this this is really pushing us on to a, a question that we pose ourselves some week of looking at this ex Ulster team and pitting it against the current Ulster team and seeing what we <laughs> what we can come up with. There's a nice quiet week feature in that definitely. Yeah, there definitely <laughs> is, isn't there? Um, so well, of course we've got the weekly dono, um, which for anybody who didn't listen to last week's podcast and is got, just going what. Um, Donald O'Reilly who asks questions every week we just decided we'd name his question because we asked one every week we'll, so, have, a, we'll have a jingle set up at some point yeah, we will. Donald actually we will. wanted a 
car stickers, so he, he wants merchandise. <laughs> okay. For goodness sake. Um, well, if anybody out there is um, musically talented and wants to design a jingle or uh, has access to making a car sticker maker and wants to do that, <laughs> yeah, just get in touch. Or if anybody welcome wants, to, wants to give us money for stuff. Yeah, also, <laughs> that was also welcome. We'll, we'll, we'll spend some of it on merchandise. <laughs> um, anyway, Donal, we put the pressure on Donal and... Um, made him come up with a good question this week uh, to see if he could cope with the pressure he gave us two to choose from and the one that we've chosen is um, he says it's often said that the Irish team are better than the sum of their parts do you think that the reverse is true of Ulster where um, the parts are better than the sum <laughs> or he says do we not have the parts worth summing up well that's <laughs> that's an interesting an interesting take on it I think there has definitely been an opinion in the past that Ulster were not living up to their potential in the sense that they were their individual parts were greater than the sum. When you look now, there's other reasons why Ulster didn't win a trophy during that period. Chief among them being playing your home final in the opposition's home ground. <laughs> um, still, again, that they should have won if Johnny Sexton wasn't making try seven tackles, but. I don't think you can really say that anymore. I mean, there's still Ulster are a team that are still underachieving, but I don't think you would look at them and say it's a mystery why this team's underachieving because the players just aren't there anymore. Like you look at the amount of proper, genuine frontline internationals, and at the minute you've got three. So where you are in the Pro 14 at the minute isn't far off where a team with three. Four, if you throw in uh, the departing Charles Pietai as well. Four international quality players at the minute. So is this not where this team should be, really? Well, it's, I suppose it, it harks back to <coughs> what Darren Cave was saying in today's um, paper, where he said, <laughs> he even questioned himself and said maybe he's deluded, but that uh, he doesn't understand why this team isn't performing better, that he feels this is better than an average Ulster team. Um, I, I, I just think this team, compared to the team four years ago, is night and day. Yeah. And you talk about the players that have left Court, um, Afoa, Muller, Tui, Ferris, Vanenberg. Vanenberg, and then Williams, Ruan, um, <coughs> you can look in the backs as well, well um, Johnny is clearly struggling to think of the facts that we. <laughs> no, I'm not. I just uh, didn't want to say whether Paddy Walsh, <laughs> well, Jared, P- like Jared Payne, hasn't played. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, but the key is then the players that are still here are obviously four years older and four years further onto the wrong side of thirty in some cases. So like those versions of these players are not the same either, and they haven't been replaced. So you talk again about those in the in your prime players, and Ulster have so few of them. It's like it's it's really crazy, and that team selection on Saturday, without those bigger name players, who obviously their forms, not what it was. But when you take those names out, and you actually look at the team that Ulster are putting on the field, I don't think it's a team that you now look at and say that's a team that's really just not the sum of its parts because the parts compared to what they were only a couple of seasons ago are not the same but if you compare it okay like I don't think anybody's going to argue that it's not the same team as four years ago but 
if you compare as Darren Keith did to earlier Ulster teams when he says the sole goal was to finish above Connacht make sure you get into Europe surely he says this Ulster team are better than that this Ulster team well no but they are but like that Darren Keith said it wouldn't be fair to call those bad Ulster teams I think he said they were average Ulster teams but look at an awful lot of people an awful lot of people would say that those were bad Ulster teams between Mark McCall winning the league in 2006 and then the real sort of rebirth that you had kick-started by, um, well, one, David Humphreys bringing in a far better class of player and um, Brian McLaughlin and the return to the quarterfinals of Europe in 2011 for the first time since 1999, then those teams in the middle weren't any great shakes at all and they finished where they were expected to finish and I think we can start it's starting to become clear that this team is going to finish in and around where we should expect it to finish What do you think? You're in, you're in agreement Adam? <laughs> well yeah I, I am in agreement um, <clears throat> look if you went through that team on Saturday I would say that most of those players are good club players and Possibly not much more. Like club players, as in as, as in clubs or provinces. As in pro- provincial, as in all Ireland league players. There are some in that team that uh, are very much just squad fillers. And you go back to those teams that were battling against Connacht. And I, w- I will put my hands up here and fully admit that that was sort of before I started really following the team and would know a huge lot about them if anyone hasn't picked up on this Adam's just trying to say again that he's young he's <laughs> got youth on my side I may as well use him um, I used to think like that <laughs> but this <laughs> but that that team back then that was not necessarily the barometer of success but that was all they were really aiming for. There was never really an expectation on them to be up near the top of the table. But I think that's the key point, because I think the expectations that are attached to this side are the expectations that were attached to this side three years ago. Even like the team that Doki had. like The team that Doki had was very close to getting to a final that would have been played here. And, you know, that team, you could say you even still had silverware aspirations. Like, I think if we say that this team has silverware aspirations, then we're just being deluded. And we're judging them by standards that should be applied to a quality of team that we had here two or three years ago, but we certainly don't have now. Johnny's literally just taken over my point and made it for me. (laughs) Well, it's made now anyway for... As long as one of us makes it. (laughs) Exactly. I was taking Um, too long, that's what he said. It's all about the team. Um... Well, moving on to a team then who maybe does have more realistic silverware ambitions for the rest of this season, um, Ulster A, who are in the quarterfinal of the British and Irish Cup. Um, this weekend, Saturday, they play yes. at Bedford Blues, isn't it? Yeah, Saturday. Yep. What's the kickoff time? Just Three o'clock, I just, believe. Just to show we knew things. Again, it's all about the team, so I don't mind that I didn't know that <laughs> and you did. Um, so, yeah, quarter-final, um, how, sort of big a, how big a game is this for the, for the guys and what are the chances of progression? Knockout rugby for an Ulster team, it's huge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't seen it in two years. Well, sorry, that's not fair. The A-team actually got their quarter-final last year as well. Um, it's, a very, it's a very tough ask going away. 
in this competition, like they really mm. sounds obvious they would have preferred to be at home, but that was in play, and there was obviously a large degree of disappointment that they couldn't get the game here. I think there's an awful lot pressure's the wrong word, but it feels like there's an awful lot more riding on this than ordinarily there would be because of the amount of young players in this team. And like you know, if you've ever read like um Forever Young, the book about um Adrian Doherty, the guy that went to play on to play for my edit from Straban mm-hmm. and there's a large section in that where it's just about Alex Ferguson's obsession about winning the Youth Cup. And like I don't think Ulster are gonna win the B and I Cup, but just how when things are going so badly for the senior team you start to look to things that you can point to and cling to as going well. And for me that's the parallel because everyone's looking at this Ulster A team, seeing boys who played for the under twenties and hoping that some of this crop is going to come through and redress the the rot, shall we say, that's set in over the last couple of years. Well what do I think about this this game then if they're um Johnny doesn't think they can they can win the competition. Can they get past Bedford Blues? Um, they absolutely can, but it's going to be a huge test because championship sides at home are a very different prospect to whenever you're playing them away. You've got to remember that Ulster A have played one game since January, and it was a friendly against yeah. Munster A a couple of weeks ago. Bedford have had just a full fixture list since then. They've had their championship schedule going on uh, in the background so they they are very much a team who know each other extremely well they know how they've uh, they know how they play and Ulster A are coming back in um, pretty much fresh uh, with all they can remember from January so it's going to be tough um, and it was Jack Owens made the point that um, they were they used to be very much a a flair side, you know, they they throw it about quite a lot, but now they've gone very pragmatic. They've got the big, they've got the typical big pack. Um, they like to play it up on the forwards, and then for a championship side, they've got a really good backline. They've got Lee Dixon playing at scrum half, former England player. They've got Chris Chekai on the wing, former Welsh international. Um, they've got Will Hooley at fly half, who's an American international. Uh, and I'm, I actually meant to look up how you managed to get to Bedford Blues uh, from there. <laughs> They're a team that's going well. Yeah. You know, if you take Bristol out of that league, which you have to because they're just operating on a different financial plane than everyone else. You know, So Bedford are third, which means they're the second best of the teams that can really call themselves championship teams at this stage. Yeah. So that's a big ask. And then just in reference to what I'd said about them not winning the championship, they obviously have to... Even if they were to win, they're away again. So, yeah. Well, at this week's press conference, the boys spoke to Ulster A-lock Pete Brown about what he thought of the game against Bedford Blues. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's big for me. You know, it's been uh, not been the most... I haven't had a fantastic season personally in terms of playing for the first team, um, which has been disappointing, but I've been able to, you know, throw my hat in here and and build something uh, which has been which has been really good uh, for me personally to, to be a part of something like this um, and uh, to play good rugby and to, and to see other guys come through as well as good as you, as I, you know, not coming to the twilight of my career, but, you know, as you come, you're getting a bit older. So um, so that's been really, 
really enjoyable that side of it um, but we want to we want to win like that, that like that's why we're here um, we've got a good enough team we've got fantastic athletes throughout the team um, good coaches like uh, you know there, there shouldn't be anything stopping us from going there and putting on a performance so. well Sam we've new club matches to look forward to this week um, we'll have to pick this one as our game of the week so that means you boys and potentially but hopefully not me need to say whether you think Ulster A or Bedford Blues are going to win have we got, I'm just going to eat one of the aforementioned sandwiches with all this sweet corn here while you do that yeah just you tuck in there mate um, I think ju- just the fact that Bedford have been playing the regular rugby together for so long it's it's going to be so tough for Ulster uh, to go over there and win against a side like that so I'm I'm going to say this is where the road ends unfortunately mm-hmm. uh, yeah I think it's a bridge too far as well Um we get we can hope to be proved wrong, but um, just I think going away is going to be too big an ask for them. Okay, and um, <laughs> now Adam has the club roundup from last week, um, where we had tipped Ballymena to beat UL Bohemian. I say we, I mean me and Jonathan, and we were correct. Well done, us. Shame on you, Adam. Over can here. can I point out? I am very happy to be proved wrong. <laughs> Every every time a club team proves me wrong, You're I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, although also, it doesn't do much for my professional integrity that I keep getting these wrong. Well, we should say <laughs> so, me and Jonathan came to this conclusion. Our reasoning, which we said at the time, was that we didn't want to cost Jonathan a free lunch. So really, we can't claim any great rugby knowledge off the back of it either. But there we go. Oh, we still will. <laughs> oh, I know you still will. <laughs> um, so yes, last week we had another big week of club rugby in Division One B. Ballymena moved out of the relegation places as they defeated fellow strugglers UL Bohemian thirty-one seventeen at Eaton Park. That's a vital home win for them. Well, at the top of the table, it's still as tight as ever as Ballymena Hinch dispatched bottom side Dolphin twenty-six fifteen, and Bambridge got a big forty thirty-one away win at Nace. That means Hinch still lead the way on fifty-six points, followed closely by Ban on fifty-five and Shannon on fifty with a game in hand. Ballymena move up to eighth on thirty points. That's two points. Ahead head of UL Bohemian. In Division 2A, despite a 22-17 win over Cashel at Gibson Park, Malone's wait for the title goes on for another week. That's after Highfield won out in a high-scoring 43-36 game at the dub against Queen's University. And City of Armagh's playoff ambitions took a hit. They lost 30-29 away to bottom side Galway Corinthians. Malone still have their 11-point lead over Highfield, who have a game in hand and are Malone's next opponents in the race for the division. What a game that's going to be. Fifth place, City of Armagh, are now five points off Nina Ormond in fourth, with Queen's a place behind and ten points off the top four. In Division 2B, Old Crescent are the 2B champions after their 31-7 win over Dungannon. That means rainy old boys will have to settle for a playoff spot despite their 31-21 win over Belfast Harlequins. And City of Derry are still looking for their first point after their 48-10 loss to Scaries. That means rainy are guaranteed a playoff spot for a place in 2A in second. They hold an 8-point lead over third-placed MU Barnhall. Dungannon are now guaranteed another season in 2B in second with Belfast Harlequins and City of Derry guaranteed to finish 9th and 10th. 
And in Division 2C, Oma picked up a huge win away from home, a 42-22 bonus point win over Bechtov Rangers at Donnybrook, while Bangor's playoff hopes took a massive hit as they were beaten 37-8 at home by Middleton. That means Oma are just a point behind leaders Tomond in third in what's going to be a, fast, a fascinating finish to 2C. Bangor are six points off fourth place Malahide as they go for that final playoff spot. We do have a couple of games this week actually they're rearranged fixtures City of Armagh hosts Blackrock College at the Palace Grounds and in Division 2B if my iPad would helpfully load for me. I don't think anybody is under the illusion we do any preparation anyway. I was going to say we're peering behind the curtain here. I do do preparation. Um, You do to be fair for this bit. But, uh, Belfast Harlequins host Scaries at 1 o'clock and City of Derry are at home to Sundays well at half past 1. All three of those games are on Saturday. Lovely. It's all hotting up nicely, uh, especially with Banbridge and Balnehinch at the top of 1B. You'll have to wait um, another week though um, for all of that action to continue and also for Ulster's trip to Edinburgh. We'll be back next week to discuss all of those and look back on Ulster's quarterfinal. Um, but for now, from Adam McKendry. I'm now off for two weeks, so oh, yeah, <laughs> it's is for you now, guys maybe. by yourselves. Yeah, well, we're, we're hoping to bring you... Um, some uh, a couple of guests over the next two weeks but we can't tell you who they are because they don't actually know they're coming on yet but hopefully they will I wonder what you'll miss in two weeks Ulster defeat probably <laughs> <laughs> two Ulster defeats two Ulster defeats I'm back for the Ospreys game oh, okay. so oh, there you go just the one there not too much <laughs> from Jonathan Bradley thanks very much and for me Gareth Hanna thanks for listening